the way that you tell people really matters. And that's also where we screwed up here because this leaked out a week ahead of when we were planning to announce it through some release notes that were vague. So people didn't really know what it was we were offering, where I think if we'd have come out saying first, like, hey, here's the service, um, it's optional, it's 10 bucks a month, you know, people might say, don't use that service, right? Okay, but that's different than saying don't use Ledger, right? And so I think that's the part that, um, you know, we, we could have done much differently. Welcome to the NFT Now podcast, your go-to source to succeed in the fast-moving world of Web3. I'm Matt Medved. Each week, we interview visionary creators, builders, and collectors, so you can stay up to date on the most important trends and tactics for the internet's next frontier. Welcome back to the NFT Now podcast. I'm Matt Medved, and today's guest is Ian Rogers, Ledger's Chief Experience Officer. Ledger recently experienced a significant backlash around its Ledger Recover feature, a key recovery service that provides a backup of your seed phrase and allows you to restore your private keys. Ian was on the front lines of responding to this controversy and addressing users' concerns, and I'm looking forward to diving in deeper with him. Before we do, I want to encourage you to sign up for our weekly newsletter at nftnow.com newsletter. Each week, we distill everything happening into space into actionable insights straight to your inbox. Without any further ado, Ian Rogers at Ledger. Ian, so happy to have you on the NFT Now podcast. How's it going, man? Good. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. You know, I've been I've been following your career, you know, since my time in the music industry, you know, and, and you've had, you know, quite a journey to Ledger from Apple Music, LVMH. Maybe just give us a little bit of the brief backstory and uh, what that journey was. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 50, so it's not that brief anymore, but <laughs> I studied computer science in the early nineties. You know, that's usually where I start. I actually started programming computers when I was a kid, um, because of my stepdad. And, you know, I was sort of like a computer kid from say eight to 14 and then a skateboarder and a punk rocker from, you know, 14 to 17 when my first daughter was born. And that, that kind of sums me up. I think if you know all those facts then you kind of know, you know, who I am, where I come from, uh, you know, from, from Indiana and then ended up in Indiana university, like a broke kid with a kid trying to like, you know, not, not live in a trailer park and, in, and which is sort of where if you have a kid in Goshen, Indiana at the age of 17, that's kind of where you're destined. Um, so I, I wanted to try to escape that fate. So that's why I took this, I leaned back on this thing that I had from my childhood, which was, you know, computer programming, oddly enough, and decided to, to, you know, to do it as a major. I ended up, um, you know, meeting up with this incredible uh, head of the music library at Indiana University who had this idea to that, you know, all these records and tapes that were behind the desk were going to be on computers someday. And uh, I was like, OK, I mean, if you're paying me six fifty an hour, I'll build, build whatever app it is you're asking me to build. And so we built something that searched the the school card catalog and and would stream music, you know, first from the RS6000 that was under my desk to the next slab that was on top of my desk. And then they just kind of got further and further away. And it was sort of Groundhog Day for me for 20 years, um, going from, you know, building that at Indiana University uh, to, you know, working with with the Beastie Boys, which I which I did. I, I left grad school in 1995 to go on tour with the Beastie Boys. And that's what brought me to California. Um, while I was on tour with the Beastie Boys, I met up with an old friend, Rob Lord, who had started the Internet Underground Music Archive in 1993 or 94, pre-web even. 
Um, and you know, he was like, Hey, I'm, I'm helping, um, this guy, Justin Frankel with this thing called Winamp. Do you want to come help us? And I was the first employee at a, at a company called Nullsoft that made Winamp that we sold to AOL in May of 99. And then we, um, you know, two of us, Rob and I started a new company that, uh, was sort of like a web-based Winamp that we sold to Yahoo in 2003. Um, when Dave Goldberg left Yahoo music, I, I took over Yahoo music after we built their music subscription service, which was a million songs May of 2005, which is hilarious today when Apple music has a hundred million songs, but that's what it was in May of 2005. Um, Yahoo music unlimited, um, had a company called Topspin, which was, you know, commercial failure, but you know, really like, a a spiritual success, I should say. And a lot of it carries on in Web3 today because it was all about, you know, having a direct connection between artists and their fans. So I didn't, you know, again, the company was not a success, but I carry like a lot of the idealism from the company with me. Um, you know, even, even at LVMH, it was probably like my most relevant back, background, even though the company was not successful because, you know, we were really building direct to consumer businesses, um, you know, using the internet at, at, at LVMH. They already had direct consumer businesses, but they needed to, to take on this online component. But then I, um, you know, after like truly failing at, at, at Topspin as a CEO, um, I went and became the CEO of Beats Music. Um, Jimmy Iovine was, was, you know, is one of these people that sees things in people. And I'm super lucky that he saw something in me. Uh, and we built you know, beats music together with Jimmy and Luke Wood and Trent Reznor and Dr. Dre and Zane Lowe and a bunch of other, you know, really talented people. Um, and I mean, we could go on and on. Like it's such a great team, you know, to this day, like, you know, Julie Pilot, Scott Blagenhoff, um, Larry Jackson, like, you know, so many like amazing people from there. Um, and then I got a call from this, you know, big conglomerate called LVMH that I'd never heard of. Um, it's owned by a family called the Arnos that I hadn't heard of. Uh, but you know, it's just because I was not my world. And, you know, when I did my research, I was super excited actually, because, you know, a personally, I, I was done with the music business. If I could be, I didn't think I'd ever find my way out. You know, once you get kind of pigeonholed like that, you, you're, you can, can be hard to make a, you know, to make a move up at least, you know, also I was pretty happy to get out of California and out of America, but I didn't know how to do that and have a career move. But, you know, even more than that, I saw this big opportunity with LVMH, which was, you know, my belief is that the internet moves us from mass culture to niche culture. And when I looked at LVMH, I saw a collection of very valuable niches. And I think it's, you know, there's something incredibly relevant, um, to web three. If you listen to the podcast that, that, um, uh, that Derek Edwards Lawson, I did, you know, I was taking, extrapolating his version of, um, you know, he talks about everything is about attention generation and value capture. And I think, you know, that, that actually describes LVMH very well. You know, I think what I've come to realize is that, you know, Drake, Louis Vuitton, Damien Hurst and Beeple are all in the same business, the business of attention creation and value capture. And then it's a question of just how do you do it? You know, Louis Vuitton's value capture is much more efficient than Drake's, you know, um, Spotify is an incredibly inefficient way to capture value touring. You can make real money, but talk about inefficient. You got to drag your human carcass, you know, around the world 300 days a year. And, you know, that's super expensive. So yeah, there's, there's money, uh, you know, in it, but you know, if you talk to a lot of artists, you know, there's something enjoyable about touring, but there's something enjoyable about staying home with your family too. So, you know, there, there's that, that's a, the obligation of touring is not always what, what, a, what an artist wants. And then if you look at, you know, if you just take the, the number of, of customers 
of Drake, uh, you know, Louis Vuitton and Beeple and, and, you know, put, put the number of, uh, you know, put the amount of revenue over the number of customers, you know, you could see that, you know, Beeple, his value capture is probably much more efficient than Louis Vuitton. Right. So, um, you know, to me, that's the, that's kind of the, the thing that I, that I saw and can't unsee now the, to end the story and, and bring us all the way to, you know, to, to current day, when I moved here to Paris, two of the first people I met were Tony Fidel, who was the inventor of the iPod and co-inventor of iPhone and founder of Nest, et cetera. And then um, Pascal Gauthier, who was the first seed investor in Ledger and then the president and then the CEO. And, and we just, you know, we were just friends, uh, the three of us. Um, but, you know, we're also geeks and music fans and skiers and, you know, all these other, other things. So we spend a lot of time together and, you know, I really like got to know Ledger through that way, like through, through Pascal, just socially, you know, meeting Nico Baca and Eric Lachevec and, um, you know, seeing that these guys are, you know, true geniuses, but they were also like, they had their finger on the source to me. Um, you know, I think, you know, I, I lived through this internet, um, transformation and, you know, I think about, you know, the late nineties when it was AOL versus, um, Microsoft and Microsoft versus Netscape. And I think about Cisco sitting on the sidelines, just laughing and saying, we don't care who wins. Um, you know, I feel the same way about ledger. I think, I think it's very difficult to call the future of cryptocurrency, but it's very easy to say that human beings will have digital value in their lives in the future. Therefore, security will be super important, much more important than it is today. It, security will be an important in a way that the, the devices that are in our hands and on our desks do not address, period, and are incapable of addressing in their current architectural form. Um, and self-custody will be a thing. I'm an American. Having money in your safe is a right. Um, and that is a right worth fighting for. And when you think about, you know, putting your right to put gold bars in your personal safe, um, you land on self-custody, but then you think about the utility that, 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 that brings, you know, if I have my passport in my safe and my safe is a digital safe, which is also connected that immediately has not only more security than carrying my, you know, passport around in my backpack, but also more utility. Because when I go to, you know, show my passport, when I check into the hotel, they only need certain information from me. They don't need to see all of the stamps in my book. They are not an immigration officer. Um, you know, they don't need to see my age necessarily. Um, they might need to know, they, I can federate to them only the information that they actually need. So I think that, you know, the, the concept of a, of a digital safe in a world of digital assets, digital identity, a world of AI where we need human provability and digital scarcity is is just sort of you know a foregone conclusion, um, and I think that Ledger you know is is you know really like kind of right in the eye of the storm, and uh, and that's what's you know that's what's exciting that's what's exciting to me. I love it. I love it. Qu quite a lot to unpack there, and we'll get into it um, as, as we go. Um, what, just a, an impressive journey for sure, uh, and clearly you know being being on top of what's next. Speaking of being in the eye of the storm, you know, Ledger obviously got a lot of uh, got a lot of attention, uh, both both negative and positive around uh, Ledger Recover, um, you know, in, in recent weeks. Let's talk through that. First off, like, what is Ledger Recover? How does it work? And what was the rationale behind it? 
Sure. So Ledger Recover is something that we've been talking about for two and a half years. I actually found it in a blog post I wrote back in January of 2021 that we were talking about seed phrase backup and recovery. Um, you know, from from our perspective, you know, you zoom out and, you know, we're, there, there are, you know, depending on whose numbers you believe, but there are 400 to 450 million people in the world of crypto today and fewer than 10 million of them use hardware wallets. So that means that most of them are either on exchanges, which is, you know, not crypto, if not self-custody, why crypto? Seriously, sincerely. Um, or they're on insecure software wallets, which is just straight up dangerous, right? So, you know, our question is, you know, how do we close that gap? You know, if there's 450 million people um, in the world of crypto and fewer than 10 million have hardware wallets, um, okay, that's a huge gap to close. I mean, we all talk about the next 100 million people coming into crypto, but even if you just look at the existing crypto audience, there's a gigantic gap to close. Um, I think there are two major usability problems. You know, one of them is onboarding, like getting up and running is a, is a, is a bit of a, a heavy load. You know, it's a, it's a, it's not only like it takes some time and actually I think it takes less time than, than people really think, but the cognitive load is pretty big, right? Like just trying to get your head around, what is this thing? It's a wallet. Okay. So my money's in it. What happens if I lose it? Like people don't, you know, which is, which is also they, they, they that's what I mean when I say cognitive load, there's like a mental model that it takes some time to get your head around. And, you know, I think of this as, you know, my mom in the nineties didn't understand sort of the basics of client server architecture, but now she does, you know, like if she can't send her email, like my mom knows the basics of like, okay, well, wait, am I on the Wi-Fi? Is there, what's the error I'm getting? She knows that she's connecting to a server. The data is coming back to the server, you know, does she understand it? No, but she has the mental model. That's what I mean. And I think the mental model of, of digital assets is still really, you know, and we, we found this out in a big way um, with the recover thing. They, they really, it's, it's a bit of magic to them and they don't actually understand deeply how it works. Um, we should take some, some blame for that, I think. Um, but you definitely onboarding is, um, is one of the tricky things. You know, if, if you know, I always say like, if you're not a little freaked out about the question of what should I do with my 24 words, then you don't really understand what those 24 words represent and what the power of them is, because you do need to think about, well, how am I writing them down? Where am I writing them down? I mean, if you're definitely, if you're screenshotting them or sending them to yourself in an email or putting them in your, you know, you know, digital notes, like then you definitely don't understand how they work and how security works and what it is you're, you're doing. Um, but you know, you need to think about your operational security and, you know, and, and okay, well, how many assets or how much access am I putting on this device versus that device? And do I have things segregated between a mint wallet and a, and a bag wallet or, you know, however you want to manage your own OPSEC. But I mean, that's, that's my point is it does take some thought and some understanding to, to get to that point. So that onboarding is one, one big thing. The other, I think big hurdle is connectivity. I feel like every day I'm struggling to connect to web three in some way. Right. And if I'm struggling, I can't imagine what, you know, someone uh, who isn't living and breathing this stuff all day, what, the, what experience they have. So I think those are, you know, two things that we really, as a community, um, need to solve. Um, you know, for us with Ledger Recover, the idea is, is that we give you a backup of your, um, of your recovery phrase and we give you some protection, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of people that would never do this because that protection comes with, uh, you know, identifying yourself with government ID. Um, but if you think about, you know, the 90 plus percent of people who hold crypto, they hold less than $50,000, they aren't hiding their assets from anyone because they're already on an exchange where they have KYC'd, 
right? Let's go to the majority of people who are on an exchange. They have KYC. They aren't hiding their assets from, uh, from anyone and they have less than $50,000. Think about that person. That's the person to think about when you think about uh, ledger, ledger recover, you know, getting that person into self-custody um, and giving them some coverage and peace of mind in the case that they, that they lose their, their seed phrase. Um, you know, that's what the product is, is all about. That's what ledger recover is a way to give people an easy onboarding, uh, a backup of their recovery phrase and, um, and peace of mind. Now, the way it works is, um, it takes your, uh, your private key, um, encrypts it, shards it, puts it with three different custodians. Um, you identify yourself, um, using a process which isn't KYC, but it is an identification using your, your government ID. And then should you need to recover, you go through, um, two KYC steps, um, the encrypted shards are sent back to your nano and reconstructed there. Um, and then, uh, you know, in the case that something, you know, goes wrong, uh, you know, subject to investigation, et cetera, there is up to $50,000 of coverage. So if your twin, you know, manages to get your seed phrase onto their nano, they manage to log into your account. They manage to fake it that they're you, they manage to get it, you know, into a device, et cetera, et cetera. There is, um, you know, there is some, some coverage for you, but obviously, you know, especially for that much value, that's a relatively unlikely scenario. Um, so that's that, you know, that's what the, what the product is. The, the, the trouble that we, you know, got into with it, I think was twofold. One, I think we really underestimated people's response and I, I apologize for that. I think that, um, you know, I think that that had we had it been released differently, and I, I take this this blame as well, then I think we could have, um, you know, avoided a lot of a lot of the misunderstanding that we had. I would have loved to have had an argument about the merits of the product rather than the merits of Ledger. You know, that would have been, you know, I'm, I was I was prepared for the debate about is this a product I should use or not. Right. Because again, I think there's a certain user that it's for and there's a certain user that it's not for. So I was prepared for that debate. I wasn't really prepared for the debate that we ended up having, which is there were, you know, and I think this is where we we really were a bit surprised that the the main question was people asking, wait, how is this even possible? Um, because then you go, well, I mean, if you sign transactions, your hardware wallet has your private key. That's actually the, what a hardware wallet does is it protects your private key and it, you know, the operating system enforces that if your private key is accessed, you are, you, you confirm that access on a secure screen with buttons, which are, you know, directly connected to a secure element. Um, but it does use your private key to sign those transactions. You know, it has to, you know, we come back to our music business life, Matt, you know, it's like we all, there were lots of people that wanted digital rights management, you know, in the nineties and two thousands. And, you know, the, the joke was, is like the only way to, you know, to really protect music. So people can't bootleg it is to make it so no one can hear it. Right. Um, and well, obviously that wasn't a real solution, but, um, you know, the way that a wallet works, not just a ledger, not just a hardware wallet, but a wallet, the way that a wallet works is, is it takes your private key and it uses it to sign a transaction right? Or to do whatever it is it needs to do. And I, I think that, you know, if there's a silver lining, it's that, you know, if, if someone understands how that works, they actually understand why ledger better, right? Because, you know, you go, okay, wow. Um, I must have access to my private key to sign a transaction. 
So where do I want that to be? I could either be on an exchange where I don't have one at all. I just have an account and I let someone else worry about the back end. And, you know, again, now you have challenges with, do I really have any crypto? You have the FTX problem, right? Um, you know, or is it, am I just a spreadsheet in an account like Quadriga or FTX or something like that? So that's, that's that challenge. Or am I in a software wallet where my private key might be available to any app running in my web browser? Okay. That that's scary. Am I in a, you know, a piece of software on my phone where if my phone gets rooted, anyone can have access to my private key. That's another option. Um, is it, you know, in a secure enclave that, and then it comes out of the secure enclave anytime an operation is done. And then I'm in the, at a risk of being, um, rooted, rooted, um, or do I want to be in a hardware wallet, which is, which has an open source chip, which isn't secure. That's another option. Um, or do I want to be in a hardware wallet like Ledger, which has a secure element and a purpose-built operating system, which has is always connected to a secure screen and buttons connected directly to a secure element, um, and the operating system enforces that I am prompted on that secure screen to push with those buttons, which are connected to the secure element, anytime my private key is accessed. So that's really your decision tree. Um, as to as to where to keep. So I, I think that, you know, look, as people understand more about this, it's, you know, it's the fundamentals here are are quite good. Um, and then actually, you know, the, you know, where we where we were pushed to by the community, I think we were we were very happy to be pushed to, frankly, um, because, you know, one of the criticisms that people have with Ledger is that it is not 100 percent open source. It is majority open source. We would like to open source as much as is is actually possible and you know to be honest almost everything is possible with the exception of the secure element um we do have more that could be open sourced which isn't such as you know the dashboard that you use um you know to navigate uh your ledger uh could and should in our opinion be open sourced we just haven't done it yet because like every company you know we have 20 pounds of shit in a five pound bag and we you know like trying to get through the stuff that's on top, you know, prioritization is, is the, is the name of a game at any startup, no matter how big you are. Um, and so we hadn't open sourced that yet. And, you know, really with the response we saw from the community, we said, look, you're right. We're, uh, we're actually happy to show you the code. Like if that's, if that's what, you know, it, it, you know, will make you feel what co- makes us feel more comfortable too. Like, um, you know, we're, our motto is don't trust verify. So let us give you the ability to verify. Um, so, you know, really we, I think, you know, we're overall really thankful that, that, well, first of all, thankful that people give a shit. That's, you know, like, we, you know, we had, we had announced this in a Wired article two weeks earlier and no one noticed, like we got nothing, no response. So, you know, on one level, like people, you know, hearing from people that they care was, um, you know, I mean, difficult because they told us in bad words, but you know, still good for the people care. Um, and, you know, and second, you know, the, the, the thing that people, that people were ultimately asking for, which is more transparency, we agree with. So we're happy to, happy to meet the audience there. So that's, that is where we've ended up. We have, we have the white paper on that coming really soon. We actually already have a version of it that we're cir- cir- um, circulating with, um, you know, with, with some security experts, you know, in the, in our industry overall. Um, so we'll publish that soon after we get some initial feedback, um, back from those, that, that first round of, of security experts, 
um and then we will you know keep going and you know open source and we won't uh we won't launch the the product until uh until it's all until it's all out there until the the code is um you know and, and i guess open source isn't quite the right word but you know the code is transparent and reviewable no no it makes total sense and it's a great great walkthrough through it you know it's really interesting i think in some ways this also really interest illustrates kind of like the challenges of of communicating like new features complex concepts things like this in this like very like hot button rapid response climate like you said this was you know laid out in a wired article nobody noticed but you know once it, this blew up on twitter you know the backlash was pretty swift and pretty harsh right like yeah, exactly. some some like really respected devs in the space like foobar like straight up saying like stop using ledger hardware wallets and things like that and so i'm curious like how how do you think about like um that challenge of like communicating these concepts uh within like this uniquely like fast-paced rapid response um 24 7 space it's a it's really a great question and i think that you know it's something i would i would do this completely differently i think it's also timing matters you know, like I said, I mean, we've been talking about, I think part of the reason that we hadn't anticipated this is because we have been talking about it publicly for so long and we've only had kind of universally good feedback on it. People are like, you know, in a way that the response that people have always given us is like, oh yeah, that'll bring a lot of, you know, that'll bring a lot of people to self-custody who aren't in self-custody yet. That was kind of like universally what we'd heard from, you know, lots of, of people in the space. So I think that to your point, then the way that you tell people really matters. And that's also where we screwed up here because this leaked out a week ahead of when we were planning to announce it through some release notes that were vague. So people didn't really know what it was we were offering and people jumped to conclusions and then we were on our back foot trying to explain what it was, where I think if we'd have come out saying first, like, hey, here's the service, um, it's optional, it's 10 bucks a month, you know, there, there we could have at least you know, people might say, don't use that service, right? Okay, but that's different than saying don't use Ledger, right? And so I think that's the part that, um, you know, we, we could have done much differently. I think that, you know, also we, we probably, there was definitely a way to do this. Another way to look at this is that there's actually two separate markets, right? There is a market of people who know us and know our product very well and for a long time, and they live on Reddit and, then, and on Twitter. And, 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 you know, the, the, and then there are new people coming into the space. I think part of the lesson here for Ariel and me is it's really impossible to talk to both groups at once. Like there's almost nothing you're, there's no way of saying something um, that will resonate with both groups. Because if you're talking to that Reddit and Twitter group, they have a certain expectation and a certain level of knowledge. And then if you're talking to, you know, an, an artist who came into the space yesterday, they have a completely different context you know, and, and, you know, there, that's the kind of person that's like, oh my God, thank you for Ledger Recover. And, you know, there's, but there is certainly a class of Ledger users that would say, I will never give my government ID to anyone online. Right. And by the way, like you can use Ledger Live today to buy crypto and, you know, depending on where you live and who you buy from, you are going to need to register with that partner. Um, you know, I, I bought, uh, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum today during Ledger, you know, buy day um, through Coinify. Um, and, you know, I, I Coinify, I had to, I had to KYC once upon a time with Coinify. I have an account with them. Ledger has none of that data. I do use Ledger Live to do it. When Coinify gives me my crypto, they put it directly into my, you know, into my wallet, into my Ledger wallet. Um, you know, but that is, again, it's my choice. 
um, to use a service like that. If I wanted to, you know, get my crypto a different way outside of Ledger Live, I, I'm, you know, certainly welcome to do that. And that is, that's like a fundamental belief of Ledger as well, is that, you know, you know, participating in anything at all ever is your choice. You know, it's a, it is a choiceful environment that we, that we push for. Yeah, that, that's a super interesting way to, to kind of break down those segments as you think about it. Like I even think about my own experience, you know, I first bought Bitcoin in 2013 and, um, you know, it was very much in that like school of like healthy paranoia, like not your keys, not your coins, like that whole era. But the only reason I didn't let lose the Bitcoin I bought was because I happened, I was fortunate that my mother throws nothing away and had somehow kept a folder with a piece of paper where I had written my seed phrase like four years later. And like, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a realistic solution for, for the majority yeah, that's of not, people. That, right? That's, you know, luck as OPSEC is a, is, right. a, is a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's interesting because as someone, you know, with NFT now, our mission is, you know, like really to empower creators and also to see this technology go mainstream. And so understanding the latter part uh, means like planning for, for, you know, the, like you said, like, you know, retail or, you know, the, the mainstream, like, like typical users who are not going to go through all of these kind of crazy convoluted, like OPSEC steps. And so like, it's interesting because, you know, during the, the debate, I understood the argument of, you know, kind of like the crypto purists who were like, you know, this is a new, like, or at least they saw it as, as a potential new attack vector, things like that, while also understanding that like, yes, but this is also a service that we're going to need to offer to really take this to where it needs to go. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that, and the other thing for Ledger, it's also the great, you know, Ledgers are almost 10 years old at this point. Um, and so it's not their first rodeo like this one either. Um, you know, and, and like when they added Ethereum support in 2016, you know, people lost their minds. You know, like, what are you doing? Um, how can you have multiple apps running on this device? Um, I mean, someone stood up during Pascal's presentation at Bitcoin Miami and said, when are you making a Bitcoin only, um, you know, wallet, which, okay. I mean, I could put a Bitcoin only wallet in a box for you and sell it to you, but it's, you know, it's, it's also not a real attack vector. Um, you know, the, the, if you listen to Nico Baca, who is a certified genius, you know, talk about why he's proud of what he has built with Ledger, it's because we have the only programmable, like user programmable smart card platform on the planet. And that's incredible and really, really, really powerful um, to, for that to exist. You know, another way to think about it, and if you care about freedom at a, you know, at a, at a very, you know, at a very high level, which I think a lot of us in this space do, you know, what, what Ledger does fundamentally is it uses the same you know, secure element that has been battle tested for 40 years in things like credit cards and passports and where the credit card protects the secret of the bank and the, and, or, and the passport protects the secret of the government, Ledger protects the secret of the customer and has of the user. And it has a development platform where you can build any application on that development platform, um, you know, to, to interact with, with user secrets in a very secure way. Um, so that's like the sort of the level of abstraction that we think about the the platform at. And this is also why, you know, but, it, but I understand like, you know, not everyone has the same mission. So when, when Ethereum was introduced to Ledger in 2016, people lost their minds. When Bluetooth was introduced to, to Ledger, people saw it as another attack vector. It, it's not, and you can read endless, you know, security things on why it, you know, on, on why it isn't. And by the way, you know, it, it, there's, you can buy a nano S and, and, and not, and not have that attack vector. But the reality is, is that having access to your 
your private key is not an additional attack vector. <laughs> like that's the thing that it's hard to get people to understand because they didn't understand how it worked to begin with. But your wallet has access to your private key. That's how it signs transactions. Okay. So once you get beyond that, you know, now you, now you can think about, you know, how it really works and, and, but I, I, I'm totally empathetic. It's, it shouldn't be on every user to understand that, but also I'm in the same boat as you where, you know, I'm talking to, you know, I, you know, I had a board meeting with Dr. Martins last week and I talked to them about what Nike is doing with dot swoosh. You know, I, um, well, you and I will be in Portugal next week meeting with artists and talking to them about how important it is that they think about the security of where their contracts you know, are, are protected. Um, I'm having, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having dinner tonight with a couple of, with, with, with a couple of folks from the NFT community. Um, you know, one being Betty from dead fellas, the other being Benoit from artifact. I don't think they mind if, if I, if I, if I said that, that they were having, we were having dinner together tonight, but you know, like thinking about the secure, their security is literally the security of their communities. Right. And so, um, and they have a lot of people in their communities who, you know, have one NFT and, and that's, that's, we need to care for those people too. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's the challenge. But I think, you know, like we said, the, the lesson is, is that we really need to have a different communication plan, you know, for each of those audiences. Um, you know, one of my fundamental beliefs, like I said at the top is that we're, we, we don't have a mass culture. We haven't for a long time. Nike talks to skateboarders differently than they talk to footballers, right? That makes sense. Um, and you know, we need to talk to all of our different communities differently. Um, you know, we're not an infinite number of people, so, you know, that's not always practical, but that's, that's what's kind of required, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was in, I was in Paris last year when you unveiled the, uh, the ledger stacks at the ledger conference. Uh, obviously that's a big, uh, strategic priority, uh, for, for the company going forward. I'm curious, like, tell us a bit about that and, and what, how does that play into your vision or ledger's vision for the future of web three security? Um, so stacks, uh, here, here it is. Um, this is these little magnetic folios that, that, that we've created that are, that are really fun. But um, Stacks, so Stacks is the same architecture as uh, as the the Nano X. Um, it's it was designed by Tony Fidel, uh, who was the inventor of of the iPod I mentioned earlier. Um, it's the world's first curved e ink touchscreen, and the and the curve in the e ink is which take was what's taking us you know more time than we hoped uh, to get it to market. Here, I'll I'll unlock it so you can uh, see see what the app stack looks like. Um, you can see one here. Boom. You can see that I've got my apps here. Um, but the, you know, the, the, really the, the, the thought on this really came from Tony. I did a podcast with Tony that I definitely recommend people listen to. It's on the, on the ledger podcast. And what Tony described is, you know, look, if we're again, when I, you know, Tony's point of view was, you know, I, I told him that I was, you know, going to look after the consumer business at ledger. And he said, Ian, there is no consumer business. This is, you know, you've got to create one. This is not yet a consumer business. You have to have a consumer device before you have a consumer business. Um, you know, his point of view is that, you know, Ledger Nanos are kind of like the MP3 players before the iPod. And we needed to kind of get to that iPod level. Um, so he, he wanted one that was that a sort of signified value. Um, so that's why it's the size of a credit card, right? Um, B, his question was, what does the future fat stack of cash look like? So he... 
designed them with these curved screens so that you could read the spine if you stacked them together and they're they're magnetic so they they stack up like uh like magnetiles um which also gives you a whole bunch of of different um you know things like i said with these little little folios you know where i i, I sort of you know they just magnet right into the folio and then uh you know magnet closed and you can even you know stick them on top of uh of each other with uh you know inside the folios etc um and you know also with a beautiful display because another another thing that our um our users have a challenge with is you know if you've got multiple which a lot of our users do how do you you know tell one from the other and you know and and, and you might want to have you know one for a particular asset or you know segregate them in whatever way you want you know put a picture of your punk or your dog or your you know or, or whatever you want uh on it um so that was that was the idea is to build like a true kind of consumer device, something that you can imagine not only selling at Best Buy, but selling at Target. Um, you know, I mean, our, our belief is that, you know, literally everyone will have digital assets and, and everyone will need more security than is in their phone. It's not just about having a, a bag of Bitcoin, um, but ultimately it will be your two-factor um, authentication for all kinds of things. It will, one will hold your passport, um, you know, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, it's also like we, we see a world where, you know, carrying around a ledger doesn't say like, I've got Bitcoin. It just says it might be like, I securely log into Instagram. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that you know, we see a, a world where, you know, secure devices are a, a device which is more secure than your phone is a, is a necessity for, for pretty much everyone. Um, so Stacks, you know, is, is a step toward that. I think, you know, really you can look at Stacks and Recover. And I think, you know, again, the second silver lining in the Recover, um, you know, swirl that we went through is, you know, really standing up and saying, guys, we are thinking about the next hundred million people to come into this space. Everything that we're doing right now is getting ready for the next bull run. I think everyone in this space wants more people, you know, to, to appreciate these assets. Um, you know, so to, how do we do that? Well, you know, I think one is having a very consumer friendly device. Um, two is being able to use that device for all kinds of things. And like, that's why we built ledger extension and we're trying to, you know, we just, we spent, you know, an, uh, you know, an hour today with, with the team I did talking about connectivity and how do we get from where ledger extension is today, you know, to it really being easy to connect to absolutely anything using a combination of your, your ledger nano and ledger live. Ultimately there isn't a better way to do it. You know, ultimately you, you need self custody, you need hardware security and you need clear signing. Those are, these are three things you need. This is not optional. And so, you know, we have to get all the way there um, and we want to get all the way there, you know, making it easy to onboard and both stacks and recover are a part of that and super enjoyable to use. And that's what, and that's what um, uh, Ledger Stacks is all about. So that's, um, that's what it is and how we're doing. And then, you know, we're, we're really like, I was just, as I said, I just got back from Taipei this morning because we're, you know, getting these screens to market is proving to be quite difficult. Um, you know, we're very, very, very close. Um, but no one has ever made a screen like this in a consumer device. First one ever. Um, and I, and I can promise you because we're working super close with the suppliers, you know, trying to get them, uh, you know, at a very high yield and a very high quality. Um, and we're, we're, we're like very, very, very close and we'll, we'll be, you know, we'll have a, a good quantity of these between now and the end of the year. And then, you know, next year we, we should have, you know, as many as, as people want and need.
Very cool. Very cool. Um, I'd love to also get your thoughts um, on like the ERC 4337 standard. Um, I remember when that kind of was uh, came to light, it seems like that has the potential to potentially simplify use of wallets and also store private keys on a smartphone's like security module. I'm curious, like, how are you thinking about that? And how does that potentially impact Ledger's business? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think account abstraction is a real boon for hardware wallets down the road because now you've got this scenario where you can kind of just add security, right? You can go from having a software wallet to, you know, having um, you know, having another factor and as a consumer you'll be able to to program, you know, what you can do with what and you would be crazy not to set those rules with a hardware wallet. Right. So um, another way to say it is, you know, I, I picture a world which is like the world we live in now, which is quite heterogeneous. Right. Like if I open my wallet, I have a bunch of different um, kind of ways of identifying myself, ways of paying for things, and they have different rules around them. Right. I have metro tickets, which can do exactly one thing, which is get me on the subway here in, in Paris. I have, you know, an ATM card where I can get 300 euros out of that ATM and 500 out of that one. Um, I have a credit card with a higher limit you know, but, and, you know, and, and also, you know, a specific rewards program built around it. Um, you know, I, I, you know, so in other words, and, and I've got a checking account and a savings account and a brokerage account and a little bit of cash. And so this like super heterogeneous identity and value world. Um, I think we'll have that, you know, that same thing just with digital value. Right. And then, and you'll be able to set all kinds of rules, um, around that. And those rules will be user defined and user generated. And, you know, you will, there will be, you know, certain things which you will protect with hardware. Um, something like, for example, a huge sum of value or um, the rules themselves, by the way, like to set those rules with a software wallet would be, you know, not wise. Um, and then there will be other things where, you know, you know, you'll, you'll set a, a, like a daily limit or, you know, whatever limit you'd like, frankly, um, whitelists or, or whatever. So I think that, you know, account abstraction is going to be an incredible thing for usability. I think it's going to take some, some time, you know, before, before it's, it's really something that, that, you know, the average person is using, but I, I think it's a, it's a bit of a, a bit of a promised land. And I think that, you know, secure hardware has a super important role to play there. It's really important that people realize there is no software that will make your insecure hardware secure. Like that, it just you need to get that idea out of your head. Um, and the and the thing that that you really also need to realize is if you don't have a secure screen, you do not have security. Period. Right. And so that just takes so many things off the table. Right. So you know, we, again, in a podcast with Charles Guillaume, our CTO, we we you know that's on the on the Ledger podcast. It's from December. It's one of my favorite ones we've ever done because I really feel like he does a great job of explaining you know why you know what is it that what what are you really worried about right? And I always say like when I talk about it, it sounds like marketing, and when Charles talks about it, it sounds like physics. That's why it's great to listen to it from Charles and not from me. Um, but you know he goes through three things that you need to have security one you have to have your private key in a secure place right so um second the operation on that private key needs to happen in a secure place right so you know in the case of ledger it's in the secure element and when you do the operation it stays there in the case of a secure enclave on your phone it might be in the secure enclave but the moment you do the operation it comes out of the secure enclave and it is is now and not in a secure place um and if in the case of a software wallet you know that doesn't do any of that it's none of the above right and in the case of you know a exchange it's not even yours 
you know, you're just believing somebody that they're going to keep some money for you when you want it um, or some value for you when you want it. Um, the, and the third thing is when you sign a transaction, so they call it endpoint security at those endpoints, you have to know that what you see is what you sign. Um, and with layers of operating system, you know, between you and the screen, you, you really cannot know that on your computer or your phone. There are man in the middle attacks that are just like phishing attacks, but more sophisticated, um, that, that, you know, are possible if you're, especially if you're targeted. Um, so that's sort of, that's the, that's the why, um, you know, but, it, but it also, you know, could be the case that, you know, I mean, look, I, I, you can also, you know, if you have 20 bucks in your wallet, you know, there's, there's no security on that. That's fine. It's not the end of the world. If you, if you, if you lose it, I think the other thing that, that I always remind people, especially in the NFT space is, you know, there's some of this is like, it's not all just about monetary value. And I think, I just think it's, I think this is the thing people, I mean, everyone and people in this space and people who don't understand the space miss this one. They think that the whole world of crypto is just about money and get rich quick. And I, I don't see it that way at all. You know, when my mom was born, there was not that much plastic in the world. Now there's a lot of plastic in the world. It's hard to imagine a world without plastic. Right? You know, when we were born, there were no, there was no digital stuff in the world. I think when we're my, our parents' age, there's going to be a lot of digital stuff. And just like plastic stuff, probably most of it won't be valuable, you know, but it will be useful in some way in our lives, or it will have been once useful, or maybe it'll just be garbage, like a lot of plastic toys and garbage that you see everywhere, right? But there, you know, I think that it is a new class of stuff, and that stuff will need different levels of security depending on its, its, its overall value. Um, and some of that value will be sentimental. Like I always use the example, like, you know, in the nineties, if you smashed my car window and stole my CD wallet, you know, it's not like I couldn't pay the rent anymore. You didn't take my life savings, but like, I'm super bummed. I'm like, man, I spent years. I love those records. Like you really take them from me. Damn. Right. And that's how I'd feel if you took my Tezos wallet, would it be like a, a grip of cash and oh my God, there goes the college fund. It's the sentimental, no, but like, those are a bunch of like, artists that I love and I have relationships with. And I collected those over days and years and months of, of like looking and collecting and like, you know, the value is not necessarily monetary. Um, so anyway, that's a, I think that that's another thing to try to, to try to get right. I think in some ways this is about digital stuff more than it's about digital assets. Yeah. yeah I really like that perspective. If you had to kind of like boil it down, as we said, like people in the space have short attention spans, you know, there's not a, sometimes it, you know, like it, there's a lot of like complicated, you know, steps here. Like if you had to boil it down to like three to five, like super quick, like steps, like what would your like tips for maximizing the security of your digital assets be? I think that, you know, the, what I, what I would do is, I mean, look, this is personal for everyone. So I, I don't want to give like a, a blanket response because people have different needs. What I always recommend is, you know, have, have a ledger backup, have a backup of your ledger. It's just practical, right? So let's say, um, you know, you're, let's say you're going to start, um, you know, doing a, uh, what I would, would definitely recommend is dollar cost averaging into whatever assets that you believe in. So if you're buying Bitcoin and Ethereum every week, put that value on a ledger, you know, find a way to dollar cost average, use something like stack and sats and dollar cost average on a, you know, the, and I'm going by data here, weekly basis, dollar cost averaging has paid off over time, right? Just like 
I wish I would have bought the S&P 500, you know, every week or every month since I was 19 years old. That would have been a good move, right? Um, similarly, if you look back over the, the course of crypto, if you dollar cost average, you know, you're, 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 you're still doing well. Um, so, and put that on a ledger. Have a backup of that ledger because let's say something happens, your dog eats it, you run it through the washing machine, whatever, you just grab the other one off the shelf and who cares, right? They're rel you know, in other words, you can buy $150 Nano X as your main device and have a backup that's a Nano S plus for 80 bucks. And then boom, you've got the best security in the world and a backup of your of the best security if in case you lose or or you know break the one of the two devices. The other thing that I think is good practice is to have a mint wallet. Right. So never, ever, 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 ever blind sign with your bag wallet, with your vault, your bag, whatever you call it, with your main wallet, never blind sign. It's like literally like, hey, this guy on the street, hey, will you sign this contract? Oh, sure. Let me sign it. Um, you know, that's not a good idea. Um, now, if you if you have a mint wallet where, you know, your exposure is less, you can be more promiscuous. Um, that's a, that's a really good idea. Separate things into kind of a mint wallet and a, and a vault wallet. And also I would have a backup of that for the same reason. Oh my God, big mint. I want to do it today. And for some reason I can't find my device or again, my dog ate it. I ran it through the washing machine, whatever the hell, you know, it's just smart to smart to have a backup. And then, you know, those are what you connect to, you know, whether it's brave or ledger live or MetaMask or phantom or temple or whatever, you know, rainbow or whatever wallet you're using, you can use all of those, um, with your ledger, um, ledger live should do, you know, with wallet connect should do most of what you need it to do. And we have ledger extension in Safari now, and, and it'll be in Chrome soon. So we're really trying to kind of build that end to end experience for you. Um, but that I, that I think is the, is, is the basics. And then I think the, the thing that we all need to move to now is, is less blind signing. So what we're doing is building plugins, um, for sites where you can, you know, basically decode the smart contract on your nano and you can see exactly what it is you're signing, even if it's a smart contract. So instead of seeing blind signing with a big exclamation point, you see, you know, here's exactly the, the operation that you're pre presenting. And that's another good use of ledger stacks is when you have more screen real estate to be able to see more clearly what it is you're, you're signing. And we've built some features that work well for this inside of ledger extension as well, where, you know, we do some kind of basically upfront sort of spam checking. Um, and then we also do a, 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 um, a wallet simulate wallet impact simulation before you sign so you can see what it is you know exactly what it is you're, you know first of all if something looks off we throw a flag and secondly you know you should be able to look at it and go okay when i sign this i see what is going to actually happen in my wallet i'm going to be down 0.2 eth and i'm going to be up one nft great that is my expectation um and then you can say go so that 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 to me is like you know you want to be sure you protect yourself the other thing that is just like good hygiene it's worth mentioning is Go to revoke.cash, make sure you don't have any, um, you know, uh, um, allowances on your wallet that you don't intend. I was, I went to revoke.cash yesterday and, um, didn't have anything major, but there were a couple things where I'd done some burns where I, I wanted to, you know, and, uh, I wanted to take the allowance off the collection. You know, I got that done on my mint wallet just reduces your exposure, you know, uh, to, to potential phishing attacks. Great. Uh, no, super, super helpful. Um, well, what, what's next for Ledger? I know that you just rolled out ENS support. Uh, I know that you have a lot in the works on the art side. Just give us a, uh, you know, a glimpse. We love the alpha. If there's anything you can uh, reveal that you haven't said yet, always always all ears. Cool. Um, well, so I don't think I have anything I, that we haven't 
revealed yet. I mean, if, if I'd been standing here two weeks ago, I would, but, but today <laughs> I, I don't think I do because, um, you know, if, the way that we look at the businesses, we have this core business and the core business is we make hardware. We have the companion to that hardware, which is Ledger Live and Ledger Extension, and we have the dev platform. Um, so I think maybe one bit of alpha is we really are investing heavily in the dev platform side. Um, we have it, we, right now we feel like we have the ability to develop on ledger, but there's a lot more we could do to make that, um, you know, reach more people, more fun to more, to develop with, uh, easier to develop with, et cetera. So that, that's a, a big piece for us. Another big piece, I guess, which is, you know, what I just said is getting that full loop with, um, your ledger, ledger live, ledger extension and and clear signing all really humming, you know, like, I feel like that's a piece that we've started, but we haven't finished, you know, and right now we have ledger extension, but it's Safari only. So that coming to Chromium will be a big thing for us. And then having more plugins for clear signing across the ecosystem, art blocks, OpenSea, et cetera, you know, so that you never, you know, you should never see blind signing, right. Or for 80 to 90% of the things you do with your wallet, you shouldn't see blind signing. So that's another big piece of it. Um, and then we have the hardware roadmap. So, you know, nano stacks, you know, we have, we're already working on devices that come after stacks. Uh, and then we're trying to build these businesses on top. So one big one is ledger enterprise. Um, I think ledger enterprise is probably the best kept secret in the industry. You know, anyone who is not an individual, but is an organization really needs not only security, but also governance. And so ledger enterprise adds that, that governance layer for people. Um, and then we have our transactions and services business. So you can buy, sell, sell, buy, sell, swap, stake, lend. There's a ledger credit card, you know, that whole kind of financial services. It's all done with partners, you know, so we, you know, we just try to, um, work with partners to make the user experience really good. So you can buy, you can trade, um, staking is something that we're actually building more in-house. Um, so that's great. You know, you can, you can, um, stake with kiln, you can stake, um, uh, you know, with others, but also we have our own, uh, our, our, own, uh, you know, staking system, you know, that we, that, so people can, you know, we're, we're trying to do it the best way possible by chain is the best way to put it. So it really depends. Um, but you know, earning yield through self-custody is important. So that, that's another big one for us. And then there's ledger recover, which is, you know, which will be our seed phrase backup and, and, and recovery service. Um, that'll cost, you know, like 10 bucks a month. Uh, and, you know, and, and again, there's definitely a class of users that, that are, that are going to want that service. Cool. Well, our final segment is a quick rapid fire round. It's called bullish or bearish, uh, just to get okay. your take on a, on a few things. To start it off, obviously with your background in the music industry, I'd love to hear bullish or bearish music NFTs. You know, I would say bearish and the music NFT folks know it's, but it's not that I'm bearish on music NFTs. It's that I don't think that these boundaries between music, fashion, art matter in a digital world. I think that artists are artists and great artists transcend these lines. So I think that there will be great music NFTs and I collect as many of them as I can. I love, um, you know, zero X music. I've, I'm, you know, I'm a complete set holder of zero X music. Look at my, look at gallery.so slash ENCR. And you can see, you know, my, my, my music photography collection. I buy, you know, when I see generative art that includes music, I, I go toward it. So it's not that I'm bearish on, you know, music and NFTs. It's that I don't think that you or I are going to make the next SoundCloud. Um, you know, based on, on this, I do think that, you know, having collectibles on a Bandcamp page would be incredible. You know, I would buy that, you know, if I had a chance to buy the vinyl or buy the, 
by the, the digital collectible on a Bandcamp page, I, there's a lot of artists that I would do that for in a heartbeat. So I think that there's some really great stuff there, but I think the truly great stuff is going to look more like an art gallery. And, you know, and I'm not sure how it matters if it's, you know, generative art or generative music art or music art or music, you know, that I think that those are definitions that have been set by distribution in the past, right? If it's a round plastic disc with 72 minutes of music, then it goes in the music store. And if it hangs on a coat hanger, then it goes in the fashion store. And if it hangs on an art gallery wall, then it's art. I think that, and, tr and like great artists have always wanted to tear those boundaries down. And I think that digital stuff and digital collectibles give another tool to tear that down. That's why what I'm super bullish on in this space is MetaLabel, who solve two real problems in the space. One, how do you package multimedia into a collection? And two, by fundamentally acknowledging that, you know, creative things are made by groups of creative people, how can we, you know, how can we organize ourselves as a group? And we're going to work on this zine or this album or whatever. And, you know, and we're going to have, we're going to mechanically be paid for it forevermore. You know, like that was, I'm bullish on, on, uh, on, on things like that. Love that answer. Um, given your background with LVMH, I'm curious, uh, bullish or bearish digital fashion. You know, again, related to the digital music conversation, um, I think that, you know, there is, so I think that those boundaries come down. And I think if you look at, say, what DROP, D-R-A-U-P is doing, you can see them coming down already. You've got a generous, generative artist or an artist, actually a digital artist like Nicolas Sassoon, who's working and creating like fashion. And you can see Danny from DROP sort of like trying on the virtual fashion. You know, so it, it appeals to an art collector. It, it also appeals, you know, to someone who's in fashion. You know, what I've been saying is anyone who is in the business of helping you define who you are as an individual has had an incredible 15 years. And I don't care if that's, you know, Instagram or Korean makeup brands or tattoo artists or pronouns or, you know, or PFPs. If you are in the business of, of helping people say, I'm a member of this tribe, I'm not a member of that tribe, you know, like right away at LVMH, what I like my aha moment was realizing that, you know, a Louis Vuitton bag and a Slayer t-shirt serve the same purpose in, in, in culture. They both say, I'm, I'm a member of this tribe, not that one. Um, and, you know, so I think that, that to, if, if that's what fashion means, then I think very, very, very bullish. Um, now, will it be in the form of I'm putting on, you know, Nike shoes in a metaverse? Mm, I think that remains to be seen. Sure. Um, bullish or bearish crypto regulation in the United States? Ooh, I'm not even sure what bullish or bearish means in that context. Um, I think that we will get crypto regulation. Um, Pascal and I just just you know walked the hill. We're not going to get anything anytime soon, um, which is fine. Um, but I, we are definitely supporters, uh, you know, of things like the you know the, there's a, a bill whose name I won't get right, but it's a bill that's about you know recognizing self custody as a as a, a right for Americans, um, big supporters of, of that bill. I think stablecoin regulation makes sense. I think that, you know, I think you have a de facto kind of government backed stablecoin right now in, in circle, which is, you know, which has its reserves in, well, until less past week, T bills and, and BNY Mellon. But, you know, I mean, obviously Jeremy is actively managing the reserves and, you know, putting them in institutions which are too big to fail, which, which make them sort of a, a of a, of a de facto, um, you know, stablecoin. Now, I don't think that the U.S. government will give, you know, Circle a monopoly on that, you know, forever. So I think that regulation will come in in the, in the stablecoin way. And I think that, you know, there probably will be regulation um, 
that does things like says that, you know, you, if you're an exchange, you can't commingle funds, um, which are, you know, kind of basic consumer protection. So uh, I would like to see, you know, self-custody as, as a right. Um, and then I would like to, I would love it if people, um, couldn't like, uh, sell people columns in a spreadsheet and call it crypto. I mean, FTX was not crypto. So, you know, uh, I don't know if, if regulating so that someone can't do what FTX did is called crypto regulation or if it's just called fraud regulation. But, um, you know, I think we'll definitely see something there. Yeah. Finally, knowing that we're both collectors uh, on the chain, bullish or bearish on Tezos? Um, I'm definitely I'm definitely bullish on te- Tezos. Uh, you know, am I bullish on Tezos, the asset? Ah, that's a different thing. I don't I, I don't you know, but am I bearish on I'm bullish on collecting on Tezos? A thousand percent. I think it's the right place for people to start simply because of how it feels. Right. You're I, and so I always say it's you know, it's you know, you when you're buying on Ethereum and, you know, paying thirty dollars in gas, you know, for a hundred dollar mint like I did yesterday on art blocks. You know, something feels kind of dirty about it. Um, and and like, would I pay $30 sales tax on that $100 item? I, I I don't know that I would like, you know, but when I'm, when I'm on Tezos and I'm spending a buck to support an artist that I love, you know, it's really just about collecting the artist. And I think it's a great way for people to understand how collecting feels and to really separate yourself from the casino mentality and have a patron of the arts mentality. Um, you know, I mean, that's, I still buy vinyl. I got two pieces of vinyl in the mail from vinyl me please today. Um, and you know, when I'm buying vinyl on Bandcamp or at vinyl me, please, I'm not thinking about the resale value. I'm thinking about, you know, collecting something that represents my ideals and supporting artists and showing my support of an artist with more than a fraction of a penny play. And, you know, and, and ultimately, yeah, friends come over and, you know, you get them out and you play them and look at them and enjoy them. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on, on collecting overall. There it is. Fully, fully agree there. Well, look, Ian, great chatting with you. Really appreciate the time and uh, look forward to, to what's to come uh, on the ledger front. Thanks, man. Well, that was a great conversation. Uh, I really appreciated Ian's candor in addressing areas where ledger could have communicated better and could have anticipated the needs and concerns of its users better. Uh, I like that he didn't shy away from sharing lessons learned from the experience and exploring, you know, the unique challenges that Web3's fast-paced, reactionary, always-on environment poses uh, to brands and builders who are looking to make announcements or roll out new features. I think that there are a lot of insights to be gained from this episode for anyone who's looking to ship. And I also liked hearing his thoughts on the future of Web3 security, new token standards, and everything that's in the works at Ledger. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd encourage you to head to your podcast provider of choice and leave us a review. We love to read your feedback. We love the stars. And each positive review helps surface the work we're doing to a wider audience. Until next week, we will catch you again at the NFT Now podcast.